Today I want to talk about the meaning of marriage. And as I was preparing, I came across some views that people have about marriage. And I thought I'll pick out a few uh, and, and, and we'll, just, we'll just have a read through them together. So here are some views that people have. I love being married. It's so great to find that one special person you want to annoy for the rest of your life. Isn't, it, isn't that a great way to look at marriage? I've got to find that person because I want to annoy them for the rest of my life. Uh, or this one, men who have a pierced ear are better prepared for marriage. They've experienced pain and bought jewelry. <laughs> I like that one. <laughs> uh, or this one, marriage is an attempt to solve problems together which you didn't even know you had when you were on your own. Men marry women with the hope that they will never change. Women marry men with the hope that they will change. Invariably, they are both disappointed. <laughs> and there's a few positive ones. This one comes from Winston Churchill. He said, my most brilliant achievement was my ability to be able to persuade my wife to marry me. And uh, Martin Luther, um, uh, the theologian, uh, the, the Protestant reformer said, let the wife make the husband glad to come home and let him make her sorry to see him leave. And then there was a journalist from uh, the last century. Her name was Mignon McLaughlin. I don't know her. Maybe you know her. But she said, and I quite like this. She said, a successful marriage requires falling in love many times, always with the same person. I, I really like what she had to say. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to explore this passage in Ephesians 5. This, this is the... It's the longest kind of sustained discussion of marriage in all of the Bible. The Apostle Paul's statements here in Ephesians chapter 5. We all just stood to recite it together. Some of you didn't recite it. I know because you hit that word head or submit or anything like that. And people are going, ah, I, don't, I, don't, I don't see that part of the scripture. Right? So that's why I want to talk about it this morning. Okay, let's pray before we get into it. So Father, I just pray that by your spirit, you would use me to be a blessing this morning. I pray, God, that you would work in each one of our hearts. For those who are married here this morning, Lord, especially that you would speak to them, those who are wanting to get married too, Lord, speak to them. We just give you a liberty and a freedom. We don't want anything to hold you back from what only you can do within us. So we just we ask, Lord, for you to move in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I want, I want to start by talking about the structure of marriage. So let's talk a little bit about this, this head thing and this submission thing and this, uh, you know, this, uh, mute, uh, well, this kind of stuff that we read about in Ephesians chapter 5. Um, when you read the passage, you see that the Apostle Paul gives us a model of Christ and the church, right? And then he applies that to marriage. And so when we look at marriage, we, 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 Paul's like saying we need to understand that this marriage shows us something of the mystery of the church and Christ. Now, straight away we see that in, and this is what most people pick up, pick up on, right? We see that in both the church and in marriage, there is someone who acts as the head. Someone who has the leadership responsibility. So Paul writes and says, Christ is the head of the church, and the husband is the head of the wife. And when I read those words, I, I say, well, if Christ is the head of the church, what was his leadership like? And, and for me, that's best summed up in the words of Jesus himself. In Mark 10.45, Jesus said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. 
So if I want to understand leadership uh, being ahead from the point of view of Jesus, then this makes sense to me. Now, some versions of Scripture, and, and I didn't use the version that uses the word submit, but you might have a Bible that actually has that word in, in this text, the word submit. Um, these verses around headship in Ephesians chapter 5. Some versions of Scripture use the word submit. And unfortunately, over the years, it's been used as a means of control in marriage relationships. Okay, So I've been in church ministry for longer than I was hoping. I actually tried to get out a few years ago, and then God said, no, come bring you back. It's not where you need to be. You need to be here. So I'm back. But I've been around the church pretty much my whole life, and I've heard a lot of people say things like, you know, you can't have the woman wear the pants in the relationship. You know, a woman has got to know her place. She can't get too pushy. She, she, you know, she's allowed an opinion, but she can't be opinionated. You know, uh, anybody who's like that is unsubmissive. Has anybody ever heard anything along those lines? I, there's my wife. It's not in our marriage relationship. <laughs> They're unsubmissive, right? And it is. It's absolutely the case that millions of Christian women have been beaten over the head with Ephesians chapter five by husbands who constantly remind their wives of their duty to submit, right? And so if there's, an, if there's any dispute, it, it's the husband's opinion that's ultimately going to win. So a good percentage of Christians believe that this text, Ephesians, in Ephesians 5, gives the husband the right to rule his wife simply because he is male, right? Sure, he should be, he should be loving, you know, he should maybe take his wife's feelings into account. He should listen to his wife. You know, maybe, maybe he'll change his mind uh, based on his wife's opinion or her thoughts or perspectives. But let me tell you something. When the rubber hits the road, it's the husband who gets to call the shots because of his gender. And so a lot of people read Ephesians 5 and they say the Apostle Paul is teaching that the husband ultimately gets to call the shots. Now, are there any wives amongst us whose husbands call the shots? Don't answer that question. <laughs> it's important. This is important. This is, this is scripture. This is the word of God. So we need to understand what Paul is saying over here. Okay, so, so, so there are a few problems with that view, that it's the husband who gets to call the shots. The first is this. The text doesn't go where we expect it to go. doesn't... The text doesn't go where we, where we think it should go when we read the words head or when we read the word submit. And I'm, I'm going to try and explain this to you because we're in a 21st century world. The Apostle Paul, when he was writing this, was living in a first century environment. Very, very different, that Greco-Roman world, to the world in which we live. And so in that ancient world, there were in many of the philosophical writings something called household codes. And those household codes describe the proper ordering of the relationships of individuals within those ancient home environments. And the bottom line in all of those ancient philosophical codes was that a good husband was to be like a benevolent dictator. Right? They were to rule their home uh, or, or govern their home with warmth and kindness, but it was the husband that ruled. Now, the Apostle Paul was writing this in, in that ancient first century world. And he takes this model of the, of the 
philosophical household codes, right? The duties of wives to husbands and husbands to wives and children to their parents and parents to their children and slaves to their masters and masters to their slaves. And he uses similar words. He uses the word head. He uses the word submit. But Paul doesn't go where the ancient philosophers go. Not once in this text do you read the Apostle Paul saying to husbands, husbands rule your wives, or husbands govern your wives, or husbands oversee your wives, or husbands dominate or domineer or be a benevolent dictator. Paul doesn't go anywhere near any of that kind of language. When Paul explains what he means by the word head and the word submit, he never uses the word rule. Instead, the word that he uses is the word love. And three times in this text, he gives this command to husbands to love their wives. In verse 25, he says, husbands, love your wives. In verse 28, husbands should love their wives as they do their, uh, themselves. And again in verse 33, each of you should love his wife as he loves himself. So three times we see the Apostle Paul referring to this word love, not rule. So for those people who say that, that, that Paul is saying that when push comes to shove, it's the husband who gets to make the call, my response from reading this text would be that the text doesn't go where you would expect it to go. Paul never defines headship as the right to rule or to govern or to be the boss or the king of the castle. He describes headship in terms of a duty to love. Here's the second thing. Wives are called to submit to their husbands as equals. Here's what Paul writes in verse 21 and 22. He says, be subject to one another. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, be subject to your husbands as you are to the Lord. In other words, submitting to one another in reverence for Christ. Wives to your husbands as to the Lord. So what Paul is talking about over here in Ephesians 5.21 is mutual submission. And mutual submission was absolutely unknown in that first century world outside of Christianity. It was not the experience of the people at that time. And so what Paul is saying over here by being subject to one another was radical for that time. It was, just, it was, like, it was revolutionary. It was spitting in the face of a, of a culture that prized hierarchy and power in relationship if you go back and study history you'll see that that greco-roman world understood one-sided submission power and authority exercised by one person um, uh, with another submitting to that that's that's what they believed held society together one person rules and the other person submits and sadly that's what a a lot of husbands say to their wives today, don't get out of your place in this marriage. I'm the, I'm the dude. I'm the guy, right? Speak up when you need to speak up, not all the time. Don't, threat, don't threaten the status quo, you. Don't get uppity. I'm the king of the castle, right? Well, Paul comes and he just blows that entire power structure up. He says, I want husbands and wives to submit to each other. So the text doesn't go where you would expect it to go, and the text calls for mutual submission. Now, I've been married 
I've not been married for long enough yet, but I've been married and I've enjoyed this marriage relationship. And Debbie and I and our, our relationship have, have operated in this way of mutual submission. We, we have shared the responsibility and authority for virtually every single major decision that we've ever made in our lives. Whenever we've come to buying a house or buying a car or any, you know, even some going on holiday, you know, that, these major decisions in life has always been, it's been mutual, mutually a mutual decision. When it comes to everything, when it comes to our giving to the church, when it, we actually, there's a boy that we have been, uh, we give financially to a little kid in Sri Lanka. Um, and, and all of these little decisions about money, all of these things, we come to a place of mutual agreement. So big decisions, life decisions, have always been mutual, mutual, mutual. Now, we don't always agree with each other. We argue more than many nice Christians do. Uh, and, and, and we do that because we're both opinionated. right? We're both opinionated people, and we both believe that we can persuade the other person to our way if they just shut up for long enough. Right? But, but what, we, what we won't do, what we've almost never done, is have one of us decide to do something that's significantly going to both, that's going to affect both us or our, our family in, in any major way. Our approach to our marriage and our approach to our life together is, is, is that we're in this together. So we come and we, we submit mutually to one another. There's, a, there's that, that, that taking into account of everyone's view. The two of our view. There's nobody else in the relationship. Okay. So I've talked about the structure of marriage. And I want to move on this morning. And I want to come to the main part of what I want to talk about. Which is the purpose of marriage from this text. The purpose of marriage. Why did God invent marriage to begin with? Why did God come up with this idea of marriage? Well, if you read this text. It, it's, it's apparent that marriage is designed to kind of it's be like a gym. Right? It's meant to be one of God's main training grounds to teach us some things. Like I just said, three times the Apostle Paul says that marriage is designed to teach us love. Marriage is designed to teach us how to love. Let's just look at those verses again, 25, 28, and 33. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as they do their own bodies. Each of you, however, should love his wife as he loves himself, and a wife should respect her husband. Now, this kind of love that Paul is talking about over here is not a natural thing. It's not an automatic thing. This kind of enduring and sacrificial love that is, that is required from us in a marriage relationship in Scripture is not a natural thing. It's something that's got to be trained into us. Right? Love has to be learned and learned again and again and again. There is no end to it. I'm still learning how to love Debbie. I love her, but I'm still learning how to love her because I'm still discovering new things about her. And she's learning to love me. Is that not true? Yes, she says, and she does it in a way which I know is not genuine. <laughs> yes. We've got to learn how to love. It's not a natural thing. You've got to learn how to love in a marriage relationship. So when a spouse comes to 
another spouse and says, I never loved you. I never loved you. And they want to divorce or they want to separate. When a spouse comes and says, I never loved you, that's meant to be hurtful, right? It's meant to hurt because what they're intending to say is, I never found you lovable. I never really found you worth loving. But that statement, I never loved you, isn't really an attack on the other spouse. When you, when you come and say, I never loved you, you aren't saying something about the other person. You're actually saying something about yourself. You're saying, I'm a bad lover. I'm a terrible lover because I have never learned how to love. It's not a natural thing. You've got to learn how to do it. And you're saying, I've never learned how to love. Love is something that we need to learn how to do. And it's very easy to imagine ourselves to be a loving person. Oh, yeah, I've got a loving heart. I, you know, you claim to love people. But let me ask you this morning, do you love depressed people? Or messy people? Or people who forget things? Or, or people who put on weight? Or people who lose their job and are unemployed? Or, or people who are unhealed or annoying people? Do you love them? Because you're going to encounter all of those people in your marriage. And so marriage is designed to teach us to love in very concrete, very specific ways. And the Apostle Paul comes along and he says, let me tell you what love is. He says, love's not a feeling. <laughs> it's a feeling when you first get married. Hey, Jeremy and Jemima are with us this morning. <laughs> you guys have been married for how long now? One year, year and a half. He says a year. He's, you know, he's trying to make it shorter. You, you're longer. You guys need to get on the same page. It's great to have them with us this morning. So, <laughs> but in the beginning, it's like, isn't it? It is, eh? It still is. It still is, they say. But I'll tell you, Jeremy and Jemima, love is not always that... You know, being on that marriage top idea. You know, it's not that it's not that experience of like, woohoo, this is fantastic. You know, it's it's not it's not the movie ideal of marriage. You know, can't wait to get home so we can rip each other's clothes off. You know, it's not it's not that ideal. The Apostle Paul defines love this way. Uh, sorry, it's it's rated. <laughs> Lo uh, he says, love is giving up your life. Love is giving up your life. In Ephesians 5.25, Paul writes, he says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He gave himself up for the church. And so Paul's relating that to the relationship of a man and a woman in a, in a marriage. And, and what does it mean to sacrifice your life? What does it mean to give up your life? What does it mean to practice self-sacrifice? What does it mean to learn to love the way Jesus loves us? Because the truth is, I'm probably not going to have to take a bullet for Debbie. Right? I'm not going to have to have this major self-sacrifice thing. Let me stand and take the bullet for you. I'm, not probably, I'm probably not going to have to run into a house that's burning down and, and rescue Debbie because the, the roof's about to cave in. You know, you know that, that big moment of self-sacrifice. Self-sacrifice is not about big things. So what does it mean to give myself up for my wife or for a wife to give herself up for a husband? Almost all of our self-sacrifice is contained in small incremental choices. It's washing the dishes when you're both really tired. It's 
getting up to look after the baby when the baby starts crying at half past one in the morning and you just want to sleep. It's, it's rearranging your, your, your schedule so that you can get to the parent-teacher meeting at the school. It's, it's picking up the dry cleaning. It's paying the bills. It's cleaning the toilet. It's walking the dog. It's biting your tongue instead of complaining about the same thing again and again and again. Small, little increments of self-sacrifice. Love is giving up your life. And Paul also defines love as practicing the great commandment. Love is practicing the great commandment. In verse 33, Paul says, Each of you, however, should love his wife as himself. You know, Jesus, on one occasion, was asked by, by a person who knew the law. He said to Jesus, what is, what is, the, what is the, the greatest commandment in, in the law of God? And Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus said, this is the first and greatest of all commandments. And then he went on to say, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And love is practicing this commandment. It's practicing the great commandment. You know, most people who, who are familiar with the Bible have probably heard about this great commandment and that we should love our neighbor as, as we love ourselves. But when it really comes down to it, how do we actually love our neighbor as ourselves? I mean, how do we, how do, how do we treat our, our neighbor as we would treat ourselves? Because it sounds like a really nice thing to do, but how do you actually treat someone with the same care and concern that you would treat yourself with? I mean, about whom in the world would you say, yeah, sure, you can check out my bank account. You can see how much, you, if you need to get some of that money, it's, it's not just mine, it's yours as well. You know, how, how, who would you say, oh, you can use my car, that's all right. If you have an accident, then I'm not going to blame you. I treat it as if I had the accident. I'll get involved to help sort out the issue. About whom in the whole world would you say, you can determine how I can spend my time and, and where we go on holiday and, and where we live and, and how I work out my career. You can shape my thoughts about how many children we're going to have and how we're going to raise those children. You can, you can speak into my life about when and where or if ever we get to retire. You know, Every major and minor decision. I invite you to shape my thinking about all of those things because I'm going to treat you as I treat myself. So with whom do we really practice this great commandment to love our neighbor as ourselves? Well, I'll tell you this morning, I think God created marriage to be one of those places where we actually get to practice this great commandment in this world, in this life. Because in a marriage relationship, it's not just words. It's not just some heavenly ideal you know, that no one's ever going to do. In marriage, God says, let's do it. That's what he does. Because marriage is like God's gym. It's, it's like God's way to, to train us and, and teach us how to love. And then marriage is also God's way to teach us holiness. Holiness. In verse 26 of Ephesians 5, Paul writes this uh, about the church. He says, To make her holy by cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. And again, he's, he's taking a man and a woman in a marriage relationship, and he's taking Christ in the church, and he's putting these together. And he says, to make her holy. You know, some people go into marriage 
um, thinking that they're not going to have to change that much. They, they go into marriage, they think, well, I'm not really going to have to change. They think, well, maybe I'll just have to change maybe a little bit, a little improvement here or there. But I think those of us who've been married for quite a while would think that anyone who goes into marriage thinking that they don't have to change, they're in for a rude awakening, aren't they? Anybody who's been married for a long time would say, yeah, they're in for a rude awakening, yeah. Because marriage, marriage forces us to face character issues about us, or character issues that, that we would never really have faced otherwise. Because you always have someone watching you. Right? Don't you? I mean, as a single person, if you want to be a slob, you can be a slob. As a single person, if you want to sulk, you can sulk. You know, if, if you want to watch TV all night long eating ice cream, you can watch Netflix till 3.30 in the morning eating ice cream. Nobody cares. But if you're married, it's not just the invisible God watching you all the time. There's this other pair of eyes. You're always under scrutiny by your spouse. And if one of the main purposes of marriage is to make us holy, then, then God will use our spouse to operate on us, often without an anesthetic. <laughs> because what marriage does is it forces us to deal honestly with our character flaws. Marriage holds up a, a mirror to ourselves where we see how petty we can be. Or how impatient we can be. Or how selfish or self-consumed we can often be. And so God uses marriage to teach us holiness. Let me, let me read a couple of verses again over here. And I want to just speak to the husbands and then the wives. In verse 25 through to 27, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her in order to make her holy. By cleansing her with the washing of water by the word, so as to present the church to himself in splendor, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Can I ask the husbands who are here today? Is your wife becoming more beautiful on the inside than she was when you first got married? Is she spiritually more mature? Is she, is she more secure? Is she more emotionally healthy? Is she more holy because of you and your love for her? Or is she growing in spite of you and in spite of your love for her? Is your wife a better person? Is she more reflective of God's purposes for her as a result of her living with you? Or would you say in all honesty that maybe your wife is more beaten down? More defeated, less joyful, more angry, less full of faith, more discouraged. Maybe over the years it's gotten worse. This, this is not the lovely woman you got married to. If that's the case, then what responsibility do you have? What responsibility do you have? And I'd ask the same of, of wives here this morning. Is your husband more holy? Is he more secure, more full of integrity? Is he more... A lover of Jesus because he's living with you. Because of your encouragement, because of your love. You know, when a person lives in an atmosphere of put-downs and neglect and emotional coldness and distance, when a person lives in an atmosphere of constant criticism 
or withdrawal or, or God forbid, abuse. A person living in that kind of environment will very often shrivel up and die. Whatever we do in marriage, one of the main things is to promote each other's spiritual health and holiness. People who live in an environment of love and respect and prayer and encouragement and attentiveness are going to get better. Those who don't, won't. And so marriage is like God's, like God's gym. It's, it's like God's training ground to teach us to love and to teach us holiness. And finally, marriage is meant to point beyond itself to Christ Jesus and the church. Throughout this text, Paul keeps drawing this analogy between a, a husband and a wife and, and, the, and Christ and the church. And there's, there's so much in the text, we don't have time to get in, into it this morning, but I want to just look for a moment as, before we close at verses 31 and 32. Paul says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. So Paul sees marriage as a wonderful picture of, of the union of, of Christ and the church. And, and what we're talking about here when we talk about the union of Christ and the church is, is really we're talking about the faithfulness of God. The fact that God will stick with us through thick and thin. There's a foreverness to the love of God, right? There's, there's an unfailing love from God. So that foreverness of, of the love of God um, is something that a faithful, committed love in a marriage is going to point to. Faithful, committed love in a marriage is going to point to the unfailing love of God. That's what Paul's saying over here. If you go back to 1 Corinthians 13, many of you know that chapter about love and Paul says love is something that never fails. Love never collapses. Love, love is never de defeated. It's never destroyed. He says love is, never falls apart. He says everything else is going to pass away, right? Your youth, your, your beauty, your career, your ministry, your health, all of those things are going to pass away. Everything in this world is going to pass away, Paul says, but love will remain. Love will remain. Do you really believe that God's love will never leave you? That nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because most of the world doesn't believe that. And there are many Christians who don't believe it. And that's why God has appointed Christian marriage. And the faithful enduring love of Christian marriages. To be a pointer. Where there's, where there's, where there's that unfailing love in a marriage. It's a pointer to the love of Christ for the church. It's shouting out to an unbelieving world. It's shouting out even to an unbelieving church that there is such a thing as a love that never fails. And so for those of you who are married this morning, I want to just leave you with this question. Does your marriage point people to Jesus and his persevering love? Amen. Amen.